Welcome to The Pen and the Yad. This week's Parsha is Shoftim. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshamit Synagogue speaks with Jonathan Eig on how it's good to be king, sort of, the limitations of Jewish kingship. Let's talk about something that Americans do not really fully understand, the notion of a king. Okay. We do not have the same sense of royalty, though millions of Americans eagerly follow the royals in England. We don't really understand what it means to have a monarch. We have lived in a society, thankfully, that has had a peaceful succession of power, passing of power, since its inception, which is a remarkable achievement in and of itself. But in our Torah portion this week of Shoftim, the issue of kingship comes up, and I think that it has applications to leadership in general. So let's think about that today. The Torah reading begins with this notion that if after you have entered the land, the Lord your God has assigned to you that you want to set up a king, and be like the other nations of the world, that you can do that. But then the Torah begins to offer warnings about what that means. And just to kind of put this in context, you would have to say that up until a king arises in Israel, you don't have a monarchy, you have a theocracy. God is the king. Right. And the prophet is the one who is the spokesman for God, whether it's Joshua or the other prophets or then the judges are going to take that role. But now you have this idea of a king, and the Torah goes on to say the following. It warns against having huge stables. It warns against having harems and all kinds of issues like that, which obviously were commonplace for kings. But then the Torah goes on and says, When he is seated on his throne, he shall have a copy of the teaching written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. Let it remain with him and let him read in it all his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, to observe faithfully every word of the teaching of the Torah, as well as these laws. Thus he will not act haughtily toward his fellow or deviate from the instructions to the right or to the left, to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So even though the people want a king, the king has to hold a scroll in his hands. And because he's holding the scroll, he's also announcing that like you, I am also under God's command. So the Torah is reminding the king to be humble, to not get too powerful, not to get too greedy, not to uh, grow his harem too large. There are some parallels in democracies. There are monarchies that have, like, in, like England, like most monarchies, many monarchies have a democratic component built into them. In America, George Washington intentionally did not seek another term so that he could make sure transitions were smooth and that the people felt like this was their government. And it seems like the Torah here is trying to set some limits that we know that there will be an urge to appoint a king. People want someone to look up to, want someone to tell them what the rules are in society. But the king needs to remember that um, he's not all-powerful. The king's not above the law. The king is not above God. And what's amazing is that the first king of Israel is, is not allowed to carry his line forward through his son. Because King Saul does not adhere to God's word publicly. He doesn't, he doesn't do what he was supposed to do. And David, who is the successor, not the son, but the successor king, 
is castigated by the prophet Nathan for sexual licentiousness with his relationship with Bathsheba. And I would suggest to you that that probably couldn't have taken place in any other society. But because the king was seen as being like every Israelite under the rule of God, following the same Torah, that at the end of the day, he was responsible to keep the Torah. He's not above the law. And that kind of humility matters. I think that it gives leaders uh, credibility. So the question, I guess, is where does the king's power come from and who is he beholden to? And is it the people? Is it God? Is it some combination of the two? Because if the people have a covenant with God, then the people may feel like they're entitled to have some say in how this um, king is appointed or um, how his succession is. is well, I think that I think at the end of the day, the fact that the king is holding on to the law means that the king has to adhere to the constitution, the constitution of the Jewish people is the Torah. Right. Constitution of the United States is, you know, what the president follows, right? The Magna Carta, it's a parliamentary system in England, and so it has different, there are differences. But here we're dealing with a real monarch and someone who is being kept in check, not by different branches of government, but by God and Torah. And that notion that there's something above you that you are not the final word here. There's something higher than you, I think has great application. But what's interesting is that constitutions often usually fail. They don't last. They're rewritten, they're thrown out, and the king or the president says, here's the new constitution. I've decided these are the new rules. So America's constitution has lasted far longer than than most have lasted throughout history. And this constitution, the Torah, has incredible staying power. And I guess the question I would ask to you is, why didn't those kings throw it out and say, I got, an, I got a new constitution for you? I don't think there are any instances where the king changes the Torah. I think that's more or less for the prophet to do. But what you have with rabbinic Judaism is the evolving nature of Torah, that the Torah itself is an evolving document. But the king has to be able to both represent the people and represent the law itself and to find the path forward. What the Torah seems to be warning us about is the king turning away from Torah and turning away from God, turning away from the people and focusing on himself and keeping himself in power. Which is a fairly universal trait and part of humanity. People with power like to keep power. They like to accrue more power. And I guess the question is what keeps them in check? Sometimes it's the power of democracy that keeps them in check. But what about in this instance? Well, the only thing that's going to keep them in check is God. And in the Bible, it works out really nicely. You know, if you're not, don't happen to be Saul. But God actually takes care of things through the last of the judges, Samuel, who comes to deliver the bad news to him. Nathan delivers the bad news to David, and so on. Prophets, a true prophet, is often a goad in the side of the king. In today's world, that's an excellent question. In Israel today, you have a prime minister who has been, has a series of corruption charges against him, and who is bound and determined to stay in office. 
What is striking is that the ultra-Orthodox community, which you might think would be clamoring to apply the ethical rules of Torah, are not really acting in that way, but are really responding in pure political terms. That could never happen here. No, no. we're, We're immune to that here in this country. But it's a story that can be told anywhere. What's striking is that it's being told in Israel today, and the election that's coming around in the next couple of weeks is sort of a referendum on this idea. In the same way that the, part of the role of the king is to keep the people safe in Israel today, and any, any leader has a responsibility of protecting his people. And for many Israelis, the notion is that Prime Minister Netanyahu has kept the people safe. So people are voting in a very interesting way. They're talking about their own safety. They're talking about their own security. They're talking about their... And and where does the morality fit into society? How do we balance all of those things? And the reality is, is that this election is really about all of those things that really apply to this toll reading. Yeah, and, and so often throughout history, you see this balance of morality versus individuality, profit versus economics, um, you know, capitalism is as powerful a force in this country's history as as religion. And the two have to coexist. It's just the reality that politicians are going and kings are going to be swayed by both forces. But don't forget that here in America, our founding fathers are very much guided by the Hebrew Bible. And these kinds of ideas regarding the king were very present in their minds. And I would suggest to you that the emoluments clauses are all about that, that they're looking at this passage here and now, that a king cannot enrich themselves, right? The leader of this country can't do that. So these ideas are so relevant. Even if we don't have a king, they're so relevant to us now. And the questions that are being asked, well, they have a place. Yeah, and the founding fathers were interested in the morality and the religious values, and they were guided by the Old Testament, but they also owned slaves and wanted to make sure that slavery was perpetuated in creating this new constitution. So compromise, always, and religious values. So let me ask you one last question. Since you are very much immersed in a different king, Hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. writing his uh, biography, how do you think King fit into this idea of humility and feeling like he was under the law? Interesting. He had no power, no appointed political office, no elected office. He had power only because the people were were behind him, that he became, in effect, the president for African-Americans. He became the the, the king in some ways. He He was the black president, but he had no official power. So his power only came from the support of the people behind him. If he lost that, and some people would say he was beginning to lose it in the late 60s at the time of his assassination, but without the support of the people behind him, he had no power. And I think he recognized that, and I think that kept him humble in a way that he never sought any personal gain. He never sought to profit from this. He intentionally made an effort to be clear that he was accepting no money for his work, uh, gave away his Nobel Peace Prize uh, award, the, uh, the money that came with that prize. It was very important to him to show that his power came from the people that, that he was working for. And I would have to believe that it was also his moral voice. He was a minister. He was a religious man, and he knew that his power came from God and that he was serving God. And that uh, without that morality, if, if he lost that, which is why the FBI was trying to attack his morality by saying that he was having extramarital affairs, they knew that if they could undermine that, 
then he would be finished. So the moral authority of a king is, um, and any leader, remains paramount. According and to it comes from his own behavior. It does not simply come with the office. Right. And that's how we maintain our power in the end. On that happy note, <laughs> we'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you.